You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, and get ready to study God's Word together in a series we call, We Are All Witnesses, Part 3. How you doing? It's good to see you. Um, Great to be here in uh, Rolling Meadows here this morning, and I... Great to have the rest of our campuses join us by, by video. Um, you need a Bible, and you need to open it to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we're going to study the first 19 verses of Acts chapter 12. I want to jump right into it. My wife was a teacher for a number of years. Um, she would occasionally get these emails from the teaching staff of stories that they had heard or uh, little goofy things about kids, uh, and they would send them around to each other. Uh, These are three of my favorites. So here you go. Number one, uh, finding one of her students making faces at others on the playground. Miss Smith stopped to gently correct the child. Smiling sweetly, the teacher said, Bobby, when I was a child, I was told if I made ugly faces, it would freeze and stay like that. Bobby looked up at her and replied, well, Miss Smith, you can't say you weren't warned. Uh, Number two, a small boy is sent to bed by his father, and five minutes later, he yells, Dad, what? I'm thirsty. Can you bring me a drink of water? No, you had your chance. It's lights out. Five minutes later, Dad. What? I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink of water? I told you no. If you ask again, I'm going to have to ground you. Five minutes later, Dad, what? When when you come in to ground me, can you bring me a drink of water? (laughs) And finally, nine-year-old Joey was asked by his mother what he'd learned in Sunday school. Well, Mom, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. When he got to the Red Sea, he had his engineers build a pontoon bridge, and all the people walked across safely. He used his walkie-talkie to radio headquarters and call in an airstrike. They sent in bombers to blow up the bridge, and all the Israelites were saved. Really, Joey? Is that what your teacher really taught you? His mother asked him, well, no, but if I told it the way the teacher did, you'd never believe it. (laughs) If you spend any time around the Christian church, uh, I came to faith in Christ kind of in my early high school years. And so uh, when I first came into studying and reading the Bible, uh, there was stuff in there that I immediately was like, what? Like that's, that's a thing? That's real? The Bible's filled with all sorts. You spend any time around the Christian church and you've come kind of later on to it. You, you, you've kind of been, your mind has been formed by the naturalist world in which we live where most, most things we say can be explained by science, right? We grew up with Scooby-Doo, remember? And there's always a scientific explanation. There's a guy with a mask that you pull his mask off. But I can't make sense of so much that's in this talkie donkeys. 
I tried to talk to, no, I haven't tried to talk to donkeys, but I, they don't usually seem to, like they talk, people turn to pillars of salt. Guy walks on water. People are coming back to life from the dead. It really does, uh, if we're all honest, raise the skeptic in you. Like, surely this stuff is just sort of like spiritualized stories to try to encourage faith in people, but it's not really the kinds of things that happen. So many of the stories are crazy. Acts chapter 12 is crazy. <laughs> Actually, this passage of scripture is the kind that will raise uh, the skeptic in you a little bit. But it's a remarkable story of what happened to the Apostle Peter when he was in prison for supposedly, I guess, the last time. It's the last time we're going to hear about Peter in the book of Acts anyway. And here he is being freed from prison. So what I want to do is I want to tell you this story. It's actually written with some humor in it. Uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is really excited about this story. He uses all sorts of really great imagery. There's some... um, funny things that take place and also some very surprising things that take place. So I want to tell you the story and then after that I want to share with you just two applications from it, okay? What can we learn from the story itself and uh, what, do we make, what do we make of stories like this in scripture, all right? You guys ready for this? Yes? Yes? Okay. Yeah, it's early in the morning for you and you're ready to go. Okay, Acts chapter 12, verse 1 says, about that time... Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Don't you love the way that uh, Luke, who writes this, says that? He, he laid violent hands. I'd like to lay violent hands on some people, too, from time to time. This guy, Herod, um, most of us, if you've read your, your, the Bible, you know, you, we get to Christmas time, and Herod's the name that shows up. And so we're like, hey, it's the same guy. Well, actually, no. We're quite a few years from that time, and... Herod was sort of the family name of those who were ruling over Judea, the area. Uh, Herod the Great was the guy who tried to kill all the little boys in in Bethlehem, Jesus being the guy he was particularly after, the baby he was particularly after. Um, So that Herod the Great, of course, he passes away, and then there's another Herod who shows up, and he's there for a little while, and this is this guy's dad. So this guy is Herod Agrippa, and he is the grandson of Herod the Great. He is really well-liked by the Jewish people. Most of the other Herods really found it kind of dirty to spend time around Jerusalem. In that world, it was like Jerusalem and Judea and that whole region was on the edge of the edge of the empire. It was very much the backwater, okay? It's not the kind of place that you would take up uh, residence. It's like the Kansas of the, I don't know, I, some of you are probably from Kansas. Hey, wait a minute. Um, It's just not the kind of place that you would set up shop if you wanted to be an important person. You you want to be in Rome. You want to be in Alexandria. You want to be in some of the other cities that really had a lot going for them. Where things were taking place and the the hoi polloi, the the really important people were all all there. That's, That's what you wanted. But this Herod, Herod Agrippa, he actually did set up shop in Jerusalem because he wanted to get favor with the Jews. He uh, kept the, the, the law, the Jewish law, which was very uncommon for uh, one of the Herods to do. He was a really good buddy of Caligula, the emperor, and so he had favor there. 
And so the Jews loved Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa had connections with Rome. And so everything was going really great because Herod Agrippa was such a helpful guy to them. And so he lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. Specifically, he killed James, the brother of John. So you remember James, the brother of John? Yeah, he's, James and John were called the sons of thunder. Imagine that being your nickname for you and your, your brother. We're the sons of thunder. Love it. That's because they, of course, were uh, pretty forthright and forward and aggressive. And there's a story, of course, about these two where their mom shows up and they says, Jesus, you know, when you get into your kingdom, which, of course, is supposed to be this military kingdom and he's going to rule the world. So, hey, Ben, when you get into your kingdom, can you just, my boys should be on your right and your left because I've seen the rest of these disciples and they are not worth it. These two, these two are going to be your dudes. And so, you know. They've got kind of the tiger mom, and, and they, they're, they're there and really aggressive with their positions, and they want to be treated uh, that way. This, this is the James we're talking about, though. James, the brother of John. He was one of the three who were in the center circle with Jesus. Remember that when Jesus would go some places, it would always be Peter, James, and John would go with him. So there's the rest of the disciples, and there's Peter, James, and John. So Herod Agrippa reaches into the very top of the leadership of the early church and he grabs James, pulls him out, imprisons him, and he kills him with the sword, which is their way of saying he took his head off. Now, if you're the early church, you're a little bit freaked out by that, right? Because it's, it's one thing if you're... If, if uh, there's persecution coming upon the normal people, but when they actually come in and they get your leaders, that's when everyone starts to shudder because you rely so much on your leaders and now that's gonna filter down and we're not sure what's gonna happen. What if they get the other leaders? So James, brother of John, was killed with a sword and when he, he being Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, and of course it did, and this guy's all into pleasing the Jews, he wants to get along with them. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest, I mean, who else would you go after? I mean, I mean there's John, James, and the loudmouth, right? The, the guy who's like the rock, the rock. he's on, on you I will build my church, says Jesus. So he goes after the head of the snake, rest Peter also. What do you think is going to happen to Peter? Now, okay, if you're the church, what do you think is going to happen to Peter? Well, yeah, he's going he's to lose his head soon. This was during the days of the unleavened breast, an important little phrase. They don't usually kill people during the festivals, the Jewish festivals. And so, like, this is a little bit of a reprieve for Peter. He's been imprisoned. James got his head cut off pretty quickly. But Peter's, like, he's in prison during one of the Jewish festivals. And so they're, they're going to wait to the end of the festival. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to, uh, note it, four squads of soldiers to guard him. Now, uh, a squad of soldiers was four soldiers. So that's four times four, which is... Um, tw 12, 16. 
16 soldiers. You guys ever seen the, uh, when they do the perf walks and they come out and they arrest whoever it is? I mean, it's politicians these days. So like we're going to carry them out of our, the, the building and they come out and they're always just surrounded by a bunch of like FBI agents or whatever. Uh, if you saw, you're walking down the street in Chicago and you, you know, Millennium Park right across, there's buildings there and out comes, there's a bunch of cop cars there and out comes some guy surrounded, you know, cuffed and surrounded by 16 agents. Would you think, he's kind of an important uh, prisoner? Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to make a show of it. So 16 guards, these 16 guards are made up of, in four squads. Uh, in the squad, the idea was when the prisoner was put in prison, two of the guards would be chained to the prisoner himself. All right? One on this side, one on this side, chained. The other two guards would guard the, the door of the prison, the door of the jail cell. Usually one on the inside and one on the outside. Now, they would do this every three hours and they'd switch it around so that during the night, the longest you'd ever have to guard anybody would be three hours. That's like, kind of like a lifeguard always gets switched out every hour so that they don't fall asleep on the job. Well, that's what's going on here. You have four guards guarding uh, Peter at all times and they're always supposedly alert all night long, intending uh, after the Passover, or they intended after the Passover to bring him out to the people. That means that they're going to bring him out and present him on trial. The people who are really happy that Herod has arrested him are going to be like, yay, let's get rid of him. Do, it, do to him what you did to James, the brother of John. So Peter was kept in prison, but Earnest prayer, this, this word here, earnest, is, remember Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and the Bible says that he prays so hard that uh, sweat was dripping from his face like drops of blood. I don't know if you ever prayed like that, or ever just been so intense on a particular object that you are, you're, you're sweating, and it's just thick sweat, that kind of earnest prayer. So they're really going for it while he's in uh, prison. Now, you remember, uh, I am quite sure that they prayed earnestly when, when James was in prison too. Did it work? Well, from their point of view, not so much. He lost his head. So they're gonna earnestly pray for Peter. It's all they've got. John Stott, who is uh, one of the commentators on this passage, is a great old churchman. He passed away a number of years ago, but he was a great scholar. He said, here then were two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against each other, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. And on the other side, the church turned to prayer which is the only power the powerless possess. Um, who do you think is going to win? Well, at this point, you're supposed to be thinking there's no way. They'd already lost. There's no way that they're going to win. By the way, this is probably the prison that, that he was in. This is called the Fortress of Antonia. And uh, this is the temple. And this is the fortress itself. So he's the Peter's up here. Hi. He's very sad, you know. 
What's going to happen? Well, when Herod was about to bring him out, because so the week passes, when Herod is about to bring him out to the people on that very night, so we are down to the last second of the game. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers uh, bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. There are a lot of barriers to Peter's release. Herod's intending to bring him to the people. He wants to kill him. He's got guards chained to him. He's got, I mean, everything is basically set up so that it can't possibly be that he can get out. And behold, this is the way this Bible is always said. Look! An angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. I, this is hard for me because you think that if the light shines in the cell, that there's going to be, these guards are going to be like, I don't, I don't know, that they're going to go, oh, there's a light in the cell. I mean, they're ro rotated so they stay awake, but we don't hear anything about the guards here. We don't know what happened. Maybe it was like a, one of those flashbang grenades. You know, the angel goes in there and they're like blind. I don't know. Maybe they're just asleep. I'm not sure but, sure, but he struck Peter. The angel struck Peter. This is like a really strong word. It, it means to hit with an intent to hurt. So when I'm mad, I, I want to strike you. Uh, my my uh, wife, when my boys were little in particular, you know, she used to go in to wake my boys up uh, the way a kind mother does. She sits down on the edge of their bed and runs her fingers through her, their hair and say, honey, it's time to get up. And they would kind of open their eyes and be, mom, mom, I want to keep sleeping. No, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And she sometimes would hug them, and eventually they'd get up after minutes. This is not my approach. Never was, not once my approach. You can ask my son Micah to this very day. He's a college student. When he comes home from college, uh, I burst into his room, and I lay on top of him immediately. I, I do. And he's like, get off of me. And I'll poke, and I'll poke, and I'll poke, and I'll poke. And I'll pull the covers off, and I'll blow the fan. I've used water before. I smack, Right? I, I, I strike, this is, this is what the angel did. He did a dad move here. Get up, Peter. And he woke him. Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. We don't know how. They just sort of did. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. You gotta, this scene is really great. You've got Peter throughout the scene being, it's almost like he's this child being told to get up, get up and, you know, put on particular articles of clothing, the kind of way that you would tell your young child who's like barely awake. Come on, just look, Peter, put your clothes on. Yeah, no, and the sandals, you're going to need the sandals. Put the sandals on. And he did so. And he said to him, okay, now your coat, dude, you're going to be cold outside. You need to get your cloak, wrap it around you. Just put it around you, Peter. And he went out and followed him. He, he didn't know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought it was seeing a vision. Now remember Peter, only a couple chapters and acts before, had seen a vision. 
He was up on top of a, sea, uh, of a roof in Joppa, and he sees a vision of a white sheet coming down on all the animals, and God says, take up and eat, and he's like, I'm not going to eat anything unclean. And then God says, hey, don't call what I've made clean unclean. So he's, he's accustomed to visions. So he's like, guys, this has got to be a vision. Kind of like, you know, you in the middle of the night, I, at least me in the middle of the night, you know, you have a dream and you think in your dream that you're awake. It's usually having to do whether you have to go to the bathroom or not. You're like, I think I went to the bathroom. Like, I don't know. Maybe I did go to the bathroom. And then you wake up and you're looking, okay, I'm not getting good. Then you go to the bathroom. Okay, TMI. I know. <laughs> when they had passed the first and second guard, <laughs> this is a reference to the guys at the, at the door. So the chains fall off. We don't know what happened to these guards. I don't know if they're sleeping or just blind or something. And then he just walks right by the first and second guard at the, at the gate. And they came to the iron gate on the outside of the prison leading to the city. And it opened of its own accord because that's what gates do. They just, you walk up to them. It's like one of those electric doors when you walk into Target. And they went out and went along one street, and, and immediately the angel left him. And now when Peter came to himself, <laughs> it, it's just a way of saying, woke up, like genuinely woke up, had his, had his coffee or whatever. When he came to himself, he said, uh, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod from all the, and from all the, the Jewish people were expecting. Notice his, his conclusion. Uh, I am sure that the Lord... The Lord did this. And the way that, Pete, the way that uh, Luke has written this story is all about the Lord. How involved is Peter in the story? I mean, he's barely awake. He needs to be told to put his shoes on and his coat on. Uh, you've seen, I'm sure you've seen the, the movies where the good guy is imprisoned and the movie is about how he gets out of prison. And it either goes one of two ways. Either he's super Shawshank Redemption clever and is able to dig out through the wall with a spoon that he hid inside of a Bible one day or something when someone gave it to him. And it's over years and he's dug a, you know, a tunnel to underneath the English Channel to France. I mean, like he's got this huge tunnel. He's done all this amazing work and he's built it up like the Hogan's Heroes Tunnel. And then he's on the other side and he comes out and, you know, Shawshank Redemption, ah! he's so excited because he did that and he ends up in Mexico. Or it's the other way. It's I have a particular set of skills, right? And he goes out and he starts beating up all the guards and doing the whole Jackie Chan. And I'm sorry, these are really dated references, but they're my references, right? He's just doing all this stuff. And he comes out of the prison and afterwards everybody's, you know, equalized. They're all everywhere on the ground. And, and the story and the point of those stories is look at, at the ability of this person to overcome these galactic odds through their cleverness or through their particular skills or whatever, oh, glory be to the hero. Who's the hero here? Because it ain't Peter. He's standing in the middle of the street like, I don't really know how I got here. I have memory of an angel. God did this. God did this. He didn't need a lot of help from Peter. He didn't need a lot of help from anybody. He he took care of it himself. When he realized that he was in the middle of the street, he went to the house of Mary. Those early church, a lot of the women 
around the early church uh, had large buildings and houses and things. They, in some cases, were very wealthy, and they would house the churches. Mary was one of them. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, not Mary's other name, but John's other name was Mark. We'll get back to him sometime. Where many were gathered together and they were all praying, remember? Earnestly praying. On the last night, on the final shot of the game, after having their last leader killed by taking his head off. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. I think it's really sad that they include Rhoda's name in here. It's like there's a servant girl, Rhoda, because you'll see what happens. Rhoda, she came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate. But she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. You have to understand from the point of view of the church at this time, of course, they've lost James. They're praying fervently, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking to themselves, I'm not sure this is going to turn out how we want. So the Lord's will be done. What they are not expecting, I, I think they're probably expecting Herod might change his mind or there might be some political maneuvering that the Lord would answer. What they are not expecting is out of nowhere, Peter knocking at the gate. So when Rhoda is sent out there, and she looks at Peter. It is so outside of the category for her. She's just, ah, uh, uh, freaks out and turns around and runs back inside. And she said to the guys, um, look, Peter's out there. And they said, you're crazy, girl, right? You, whatever. He is not out there. Maybe you need to get some sleep. Maybe you're just seeing things. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, this is a fight, by the way, kept insisting and kept saying, they kept saying, it's his angels, yeah? There's a viewpoint among a lot of the Jewish people that if uh, you died, Jewish person died, that you would be visited, friends and family would be visited almost immediately by the angel. So the sign that your friend was dead was you being visited by your friend's angel. So they're saying, Rhoda, he, they killed him early. <laughs> they, just, they just offed him. And you, you're seeing his angel. And it's a sad sign for us. But Peter continued knocking. They kept saying and kept insisting, and Peter kept knocking. Can you imagine this from the point of view of Peter? Right? He's, he's been freed from prison. He's in the middle of the street. He's not safe yet. There might be guards around and that kind of thing. There's not a lot of people around in the middle of the night. He shows up to the gate, and he's knocking. Rhoda comes along, and he's like, Rhoda. Hey, it's me. And she's like, ah, runs back inside. <laughs> right? So he keeps knocking, and then they, they continue to open, or they, they open, and they saw him. And, um, well, they were, they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. That would have been a really enjoyable evening story time with Peter. And he said, tell these things to James. It's not the same James. This is James, the guy who wrote the book in the Bible, James. It's one of the, other, one of the, real, the leader's brother of Jesus, James. 
Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Why? Because stories like this are supposed to encourage the faith of people to realize that no matter who it is that decides to stand over against God and his people, they will always lose. There will never, ever be a moment where in the long term, the enemies of the Lord Almighty will achieve their goals. And then he departed and went to another place. You could have ended it there. I mean, it, we would all have been like, wow, that's an amazing story. But uh, in a lovely way, Luke is like, oh, but there's more. Uh, when the day came, there was uh, no little disturbance among the soldiers. Have you ever lost your wallet? Right, you freak out because you're like, oh no, someone might have gotten a hold of it and I'm gonna go into financial ruin. So there's fear of that. There's also frustration because, ah, oh, I don't like going to the you know, Secretary of State's office to get my license done and now I gotta go sit there and wait forever. And so you, you search like endlessly for your wallet. It's the only thing on your mind. You're searching for your wallet. Of course, if you lose your wallet, the worst thing that's gonna happen, you're not gonna die, right? If you lose a prisoner... In those days, there was a, a rule called the Code of Justinian, which said that if you are guarding a prisoner and, that prison, and you lose that prisoner, whatever the prisoner's punishment was supposed to be is now yours. So the punishment of this prisoner was supposed to be death, and so you can imagine how, how much the sentries are looking for this prisoner. They look everywhere, want to know what had become of Peter, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. The Code of Justinian. Herod went down from Judea then to Caesarea and spent time there. When you finish the story, you're so kind of supposed to be thinking to yourself, what, the sentries are the ones who get in trouble for this? What, what about Herod? Um, come back next week there are worms involved, okay? What do we learn? Well, um, a couple of big things. I could spend a long time talking about reflections about this passage, but uh, I just want to point out two of them. Here's the first. I really want you and me to acknowledge that stuff like this actually happens. You and I are caught in a worldview of secularism, which is built upon what we call philosophical naturalism. It's the belief that the only real things in the universe are physical things. So that's why Scooby-Doo said what they did for so many years. There's got to be a scientific explanation for this. There's got to be. And our whole society would say that. So when we ever talk about miracles or crazy things happening or even an immaterial world of any variety, you know, angels, demons, that kind of stuff, people in the Western world will say, you're a crazy kook. You religious weirdos, if you can't put it in a Bunsen burner and run the scientific method on it, it's not real. I always laugh because you can't do that with the beginning of the universe, but whatever, right? You can't put that in the beaker and test it over and over again. But, you know, it happened apparently. But that's the way that we approach things. And so whenever we come to this sort of thing, our, we, we're, we're trained to be skeptical. Listen, if you lived in Africa today, you would not come to this story and be 
skeptical. If you lived in the Middle East, you wouldn't be skeptical. But in the West, the enlightened West, we are very skeptical about these sorts of things. And so if you go into a number of the, the commentators uh, on these passages, what you'll find is, well, this is, this is more of a natural miracle. It's the language that's used. And what do you mean, natural miracle? Well, look, what really happened was Herod had a change of mind and he freed Peter. But that kind of thing doesn't inspire faith like a story like this would. And so what happens with religious people is that they end up dressing up the things that happen just naturally in these spiritual language to try to motivate people's faith. That your God can do anything. He can even free you from prison and chains fell off and... Guards didn't see anything, but what really happened was there's a scientific explanation for it. <laughs> Lots of people end up believing that because we're inclined to believe it, because our, that's the way we're taught. The problem is that the Bible doesn't hold the same worldview that we in the West do. The Bible's like, oh no, there's a whole immaterial world that exists, man. Now, that what's real about this world is both what you see and what you don't see. That not only are you physical, but you're immaterial too. You have a soul. And there are, there's an eternality to the non-physical world. And if you don't include that in your understanding of the physical, you immediately just get rid of stuff like that. But this actually happened. Now, you can tell it actually happened because it really does show the marks of a, an eyewitness account. Okay. Then a number of years ago, there was a, um, a professor, supposedly. This is a story that went around. I remember getting it two, three, four emails. Christians were sharing it all over the place. There's a story that went around about a professor at the University of Southern California who was a philosophy professor who for years just denigrated the Christian faith. Part of the role in his class was to say their Christianity is stupid. Well, apparently, at the end of each term, he would say to his class, is anybody here still, who was a Christian, still, still believe and affirm what they believed when they first came in? And if you do, please stand up. I have a test I want to run. The test is, I'm going to take this little piece of chalk, and I'm going to throw it, and I'm going to have you pray I'm going to throw the chalk in the air, and if it doesn't, you're going to pray that it doesn't break. But if it falls and it breaks, then this is evidence that there is. this is not a hard test for God. I'm seeking God. I want God to answer this. He throws it up in the air, and he says, if it doesn't break, then that means that God is real. Well, of course, students aren't dumb. They're, nobody wants to stand up in class. This is like the professor that everybody talks about, so that nobody ever really stood up. Well, until one term... This freshman kid came in and he had heard stories about what was going to happen at the end of the class. He, he you know, persevered through all of the negative talk about Christianity all the way through the class. He gets to the end of the class and the professor does his spiel. Hey, if there's anybody in the room who's still a Christian, will you stand up? I want to put, that to, put you to a test. And so this kid finally stands up. Professor's a little bit like, whoa, that's new. Never had to do it before. Okay. What I need you to do is I need you to pray out loud in front of everybody that this chalk won't break. And so the student says, okay. And he prays out loud, Lord, make this, put this man in his place. <laughs> you know, keep the chalk together. So, amen? Amen. Everybody ready? Takes the chalk, flicks it in the air. Now, when he flicks it in the air, it kind of comes back toward him a little bit. So he moves back, but it hits his shirt 
rolls down his shirt onto his trouser, hits his shoe, and rolls harmlessly onto the ground. Okay, now, everybody in class is like, oh. Professor walks out. According to the story, the kid was able to talk more about Christ in the class. It never happened. Do you know how I know it didn't happen? Because there were people who went to the University of Southern California to try to prove that this did or didn't happen. He went to every philosophy professor who had worked there for the last, I don't know how many years, and they asked these professors, did you ever do this kind of thing? No. They went to students, and they asked them, did you do this thing? And so Snopes and the other ones were like, ah, you stupid Christians, you're buying, you should never, listen, you should never give specifics if you want to be, want it to be a fabrication. That's how... Kids, listen, Uncle Jeff, the way you lie to your parents is you don't say, I was with Joey, and they know Joey. You say, I was with Carrie, and you don't know her. You're welcome. <laughs> you don't live in specifics because specifics are, can be fact-checked. You can actually, so you keep things general, and most of the myths that exist in, in history of religion are so general. They don't give specifics about anything. They don't give names. They don't give places. They don't give dates. What's here, though? Um, names, Rhoda, who's probably not thrilled that forevermore she will be known as the girl who went back inside. Rhoda, you want to you wanna know if this happened? Go talk to Rhoda. She stays at Mary's house. Mary, he was in prison during the week of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's a whole bunch of disciples who asked him after the fact, saw him at the gate, saw him be taken away, saw him at the gate. They even include denigrating things about themselves, like what kind of disciples are praying fervently, earnestly behind the scenes, and yet uh, are shown to be, when the, the moment comes, shown to be like un, unfaithful? Ah, it's not Peter, it's his, it's, it's his ghost. You don't do this when you're wanting to fabricate a story. You don't denigrate yourself, you don't use specifics, and yet this does. It has all the earmarks of historic eyewitness testimony or in other words, it happened. It still does. Brother Yun is the name of a Christian brother who lived in China. Uh, he lived under the CCP, the, the Communist Party of China. He was a leader of one of the house churches there. He was arrested. And he went into prison for a very long time. He was beaten up in prison. He got... In prison, though, he got a sense that the Lord wanted him to leave. He, he said that one of his brothers in the prison, one of the other Christians, said to him just out of the blue one day, you know, the Lord has for you to leave. He was reading a scripture, and he read this passage of scripture. He, 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 he felt like the Lord had told him, you need to just this after, this, the next, tomorrow morning get up and go. He wrote a book. His book was called The Heavenly Man. It's a good read. Here's what he wrote. He said, I was dressed... Only in my underwear. So as quickly as I could, I pulled my trousers up. I'd written scriptures from the Gospel of John and 1 Peter on a long piece of toilet paper. I fashioned it into a belt of truth. <laughs> God bless him. Can you imagine this guy in underwear with toilet paper wrapped around? I'm going to escape prison today. 
I prayed, Lord, you've shown me that I must try to leave this prison. I'm gonna obey you now and try to escape, but when the guards shoot me, please receive my soul into your heavenly dwelling. It was now more than six weeks since my legs had been smashed, even putting a little weight on them caused tremendous agony, but I believed God had told me in three different ways that I was to escape, through his word, through a vision I'd received that morning, and through Brother Zhu. It was just before 8 a.m. in the morning on the 5th of May, 1997. To the natural mind, the time was the worst time to try to escape. There was guards everywhere. I shuffled out of my cell, walked towards the locked iron gate in the hallway. My mind was solely focused on obeying God. I looked straight ahead and prayed beneath my breath with every step I took. A guard who pushed the button when he wanted the gate to open and close, he sat at the top of the third floor stairwell. It was impossible to see the other side because uh, the gate was made of iron and the small windows were covered in black cloth. At that exact moment that I reached the gate, another servant of the Lord, Brother Musheng, was returning to his cell and the gate was open for him. That morning, he'd been ordered to sweep the prison courtyard, and as Musheng passed me, I told him, wait, don't close the gate. I walked through without even breaking my stride. The Lord's timing was perfect. And as we passed, Musheng asked in a whisper, are you leaving, Brother Yun? Are you not afraid to die? And then with an astonished look on his face, he returned to his cell. There had been a guard accompanying Musheng back to his cell, but at the exact moment he opened the gate for Musheng, a telephone rang in an office down the hallway, and the guard turned and ran to answer it. I noticed a broom leaning against the wall in the stairwell. I picked it up and continued walking with it down the stairs to the second floor. An armed guard was positioned at his desk facing the second iron gate. That gate was sometimes left open. An on-duty guard was assigned to watch the gate day and night, so it was considered a risk to leave it uh, unlocked. Uh, it was not considered a risk to leave it unlocked. At that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, go now, the God of Peter is your God. Somehow the Lord seemed to blind that guard. He was just staring directly at me. Yet his eyes didn't acknowledge my presence at all. I expected him to say something, but he just looked through me as if I was invisible. He didn't say anything. I continued past him, didn't look back. I, I knew I could be shot in the back at any moment. I continued to silently ask the Lord to be ready to receive my spirit, thinking these moments were to be the last, my last in this world. I continued walking down the stairs, but nobody stopped me. And none of the guards said a word to me. When I arrived at the main iron gate leading out of the courtyard, I discovered it was already open. That was odd, as it was usually the most secure of all. There were normally two guards stationed at the first floor gate, one on the inside and one on the outside, but for some reason, neither of them was present, and the gate was open. So I discarded the broom I'd carried with me from the third floor and walked out into the courtyard, and the bright morning Son made, it, made me wince. I walked past several guards in the yard, but nobody said a word to me. I, I then strolled through the main gate, the main gate of the prison, which for some reason was also standing ajar. My heart was 
pounding. I was now standing on the street outside the Zhengzhou number one maximum security prison. I was told later nobody had ever escaped from that prison before. Immediately, a small yellow taxi pulled up next to me, and the driver, a man in his late 20s, opened the passenger door and said, where are you heading? I got in and replied, I, I, I need to go to my office as quickly as possible, so please drive fast. I gave him the address of a Christian family I know in Zhengzhou, and we drove away from the prison. I told him that if we came to a traffic jam, drive around it. Do not stop for any reason. All of these events seemed to happen in just a few moments, like a daydream. I was sure. I was unsure if the whole thing had, just, had happened, really happened, or I was dreaming. I, I don't know how the Lord did it or why all those iron gates usually so tightly locked were standing open for me. All I knew is I was sitting in the back seat of a taxi cab heading to the home of my friends. The prophet Elisha walks with his friend outside of the city that he was in and he notices the army ready to invade and kill him. And his friend says, we're, we're lost, we're dead. And Elisha says, no, there are more who are with us than are with them. His friend looks around, there's nobody with us. And God peels back the layer between the material world and the immaterial world. And they see the host of heaven, the army of God, preparing for battle. Your life will be ruined by naturalism if you let it. There is an immaterial world. There is a God. There are angels. There are demons. There is an enemy of our souls. There is a battle being waged. The victory is ours. And God can do immeasurably more than you and I can think because he's limited by some material things happening around us. He can do Anything he wants. Which leads me to my second point, which is no one can stop the Lord Almighty. This, this passage, there, there's a comparison in this section of Acts between the hand of the Lord and the hand of Herod. That language is used in two different passages. And the question you're supposed to be asking yourself as you work through this is whose hand is stronger? Whose? Whose? The hand of the Lord is stronger. Of course, the hand of the Lord is stronger. He can do whatever he wants. Anyone who stands over against him will be decimated on every occasion. If they win a skirmish, it's because he let them win. In the end, our God reigns in power. So, you have stories in the Bible about the strongest military force on the planet, the Egyptians chasing the Israelites and they're standing on the Red Sea and they can't, I don't know what's gonna happen. And God says, put your stick in the water. He parts it, they walk through and the enemies of God are swallowed up in the sea. There wasn't a shot fired. God did it all. 
The ark of God at one point is stolen by the Philistines and they put it in their temple as an object of uh, as an object of like treasury to their god Dagon to prove that Yahweh was beaten by Dagon. The next morning, nobody ever went into the room. The next morning, the, the, the idol of Dagon had somehow been pushed over and was bowing before the ark. Do you think some Jews snuck in there and were like, oh, we're going to to a prank on them, <laughs> punked. Do you think that happened? No. Next morning, they put the idol back up. The next morning, go in and his hands are cut off. All by himself, God does this. Doesn't need your help. Doesn't need my help. He can do anything he wants. But he does say that if you want my hand to move, you have to pray. You want to move the hand of the Lord? Earnest prayer. Sweaty, middle of the night, at the last moment, oh God, you have to put a little dot on your watch so every time you look at it, you remember every quiet moment in the car, God, you have to, you have to, you have to. That's, he says, how I'm going to do these things. You ask I will answer. So why don't we pray earnestly? Look, if we're honest, the reason we don't pray earnestly is probably contained in this passage because sometimes when we pray earnestly, guys like James get killed. And we don't know why James gets to die and Peter gets to live. And so there are experiences in our life where we pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and God hasn't done what we've expected. And so we're left with this sort of quandary in our hearts thinking, you know, Lord, I don't know if I can keep praying to you because my experience in prayer has not always been successful. How am I supposed to boldly pray to you when I'm not sure that my prayer is going to be answered to my liking? And look, the only way I can answer that is by saying this. You would answer every prayer you have the same way God does if you knew what he knows. If you knew what God knows, every prayer you pray would be answered exactly as it is. There will never be a moment you stand before God in your life and say, you wronged me because you did. God will say, no, 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 let me show you in time why I did this thing so that this thing later wouldn't happen. Or I did this thing to set it up later so that you could do that thing. God never, he never gives stones when he's asked for bread. There are no scorpions when we ask for fish. Everything he gives is for our good. So why don't we pray? Look, I'll finish with, with this. My, I have a dog. His, her name's Lulu. She's a little golden retriever. She's a year old. Um, I am not a good dog owner. My whole life, we've had dogs, my family. And my sister was like, she, the dog can only eat kibble. And I was always like, yeah, the dog's going to eat everything else. And every time I finished with a plate of food, I'd be sneaking it to my dogs their whole life. By the way, all lived long, healthy lives. So... But I've kept doing this because they're dogs. 
And I, I also really cared for Lulu. And so if you came to my house, one of the things you'd notice about Lulu is that she would pester you a long time. And you'd notice her pestering me a lot because like, so if we sat down to eat, she'd immediately come over and she puts her head right on my lap. And she looks at me and I have drool spots on my legs because she looks at me. And any move of my hand, she starts going through the gamut of different things that I've supposedly taught her. You know, it's like she'll lie down, roll over, put a hand up, you know start speaking German, whatever. She'll like do all this stuff. <laughs> she has this little pull toy where she goes and she'll grab this pull toy and she'll come to me and she'll whip it at me and keep swinging at me. And I'm like, Lula, I don't have time right now. I'm tired. Like, she just keeps doing it. She just keeps doing it. She keeps doing it. You know what I do on every occasion? I play with this dog. You know, on every occasion, I give food. This, this morning, the dog was slobbering on me and I was giving her eggs. I do it because I like her. I, like, I think it's cool. I think it's sweet that she does this. And I like the relationship she and I have. It's amazing. If I'm willing to do that, wicked as I am, for my dog, what do you think the God who chose you before the foundations of the world sent his son to die for you will do when you ask, when you plead, when you drool, when you keep going after it. What do you think he's going to do? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Why don't you plead? So many have given up asking. So many are tired. So many are longing for God to come through. Keep going. Dad, what? You gotta come through. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your kindness, your grace. Passages of scripture like this that is meant to inspire faith and confidence in you, and I pray it will do that very thing. So, Father, fill us with your spirit that we might pray prayers to you that are um, powerful and focused and help us be persistent. We, we grow tired and weary, so spirit, we need you to come. We need you both motivate the prayers that we pray, keep us persevering in persistence, and Father, we need you to respond. Would you prove your power like you did to these early disciples? Would you prove your power through the answering of many prayers? And I pray, Father, that in the days to come, there will be stories, little groups where we sit together late at night or whenever we sit around and we have testimonies from people saying, look what the Lord has done. There were all these barriers and yet he came through because he's our God. Show yourself faithful and powerful, we pray in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.